have been talking about provision uh, in this, this series that we're ending. This is a, like, we've gone through a lot this year as far as talking about building uh, God's house and God building his house. And this week, our month, we've been looking at provision. And we'll have a few twists in there as we'll look at it. We'll have Father's Day message and, and things like that. But provision, what God gives to us. And like Pastor Ingrid said, it's so beautiful that God has provided his presence in such a tangible way for us through the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And um, I'm glad that those are the days that we're living in, that we have God's spirit with us. You don't need me to have God's spirit, God's presence leading you and directing you in your life. Uh, like the old days of the Old Testament where the, the priest was the person. The priest and the prophet were the voice of God for the community. You have God's voice speaking directly to you for the future that he has for you. And so I'm so thankful that we live in, in this age and that where we have God's presence so close to us. So last week, uh, we made some waves, didn't we? Talking about problems in understanding God's provision and how we see and view how God provides for us. How God provides equally but not always evenly based on our obedience and purpose and the enemy's attacks on us. We may have looked for God to provide and we didn't see it. And so we quickly jumped into looking somewhere else in our lives for provision, whether we were that provision for ourselves or we found it somewhere else. Maybe you had a moment this week to repent of coveting somebody else's provision and maybe you've deepened your trust in God's provision for your life and in the situations you're facing. And maybe you're glad that we're through that portion of, of provision and talking about that, moving on, because it was tough. It was challenging. It pushed on some buttons in your life. It felt awkward. Well, sorry. Get ready for some more waves. That just seems to be the way it is when it comes to God's provision and how we view it. We're going to look even deeper at how God gives, both equally, but we may not experience evenly. We can often live in that tension of God and us, heaven and earth, his kingdom coming, but it's not here fully. And in understanding what his promises are, what they look like from both a, a an unconditional promise to a conditional promise or covenant. So what does that mean? What did I just say in that, that big rambling sentence? It's this, that God is God. He's all-powerful, and he said a whole bunch of things in his Bible that people quote that sounds like there's a lot of things that we should have in life, and yet we don't. And so why is that? Why do we not have what some people say we should have? What does it look like to have God's provisions? Now, I mentioned in there two types of promises that God makes, or the, what the, the language the Bible uses is covenants. Same thing we talk about when we have a marriage, right? We talk about it being a marriage covenant. You may have heard that in, in marriage ceremonies that you've, you've attended to or in your own, uh, that it is a covenant between a man and a woman and between God. It's a, it's a promise, it's a contract, it's a relationship or an agreement that God makes. And he makes them in two ways. 
And the first way is this. It's an unconditional promise. When God says he'll do something, no matter what, there's no if, ands, or buts, there's no conditions, no clauses, no nothing, God is going to do it. And then there are conditional promises that he says, if you, then I, or if, if you come, then I will. There's, there's, a going, there's a back and forth in the relationship between us and God that allows for that promise to be fulfilled. Now, there are, there are only a few unconditional promises from God if we are to remove the names that God calls himself, right? God says, uh, like, he is love. He says all these things. So if we, if we remove some of those things that, that God just gives us because that's his nature and his name, what are some of the things that he's told us um, that, that he's promised to us? Well, one, a uh, very common one that people often uh, would know, uh, no matter your, your, maybe your, your Bible knowledge, is that we have a rainbow because God said he, he gave us a rainbow to, to show us that he will never flood the earth again. He will never destroy the earth by flood again. He promised that. There's no conditions that we need to fulfill in order for that to happen. He promised that. God also promised a land for the nation of Israel. He was going to give it to them. God promised a Messiah, salvation, and he promised that he would return for us. No conditions were needed or are needed for these promises to be fulfilled. God is going to do those things. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it to happen or not, he's going to do those things. They're unconditional. So then we get conditional promises, conditional provision from God. They seem to have an asterisk with them or a clause or the fine line in writing, right? All the extra pages of your phone contract that you never, ever, ever read, right? Those type of things. We kind of have that idea of what maybe God has in store for us. But when you read how he gives his conditional promises, it's not like that at all. These promises require an action on the part of the hearer, us, we're required to respond, to move, to deny ourselves, etc., for the promise to be fulfilled. So what provision does God offer us conditionally? And I'm going to give you a few. First one is this. God gives us rest. God gives us rest. And there are two types of rest that he gives. The first one is this. We see in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. If we come to him, he offers rest, an easy yoke, a light burden, Sounds, sounds good, right? If you come, this is what I have for you. In the context that that was written in, these verses refer to our salvation through Christ versus the yoke of laboring to try to be perfect and being heavily laden with the failures of trying to be sinless. Those are the options between the two. You can have a heavy burden of trying to be perfect, trying to live up to the perfect standard of what God is and what God would expect. 
You can try that, but it's heavy. It's hard. It doesn't fit well. Or you can have the light and easy yoke like Jesus gives us. And why is it easy and light? His yoke is light because there's no striving. We rest in the finished work of Jesus. We don't have to do the hard work of being perfect. He's already done it. We rest in that. We say, thank you, Jesus, for your perfection. That every time we fall, every time we fail, we ask for your forgiveness and we keep moving forward and your perfection covers us. There's no burden because our sins are forgotten. We don't carry them around constantly, reminding ourselves of all the things that we've done wrong. Our yoke becomes to live within the parameters of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. That's how the yoke is easy to pull around. Be loving, be kind, be patient. That should have a much freer experience than carrying around all the brokenness of sin in our lives. You never measure up. You're always going to fail. Look, you did it again. God couldn't love you the way you are. That's a heavy burden to to bear. When God says, you don't need that. It's a lie. It's not true. I offered you my grace and my forgiveness. Now just walk in my love. That's rest for our souls, isn't it? That's a rest that only God can give from that inside place where we're just, we're so burdened down by the way the world treats us and points at us. But God gives us rest. May you come to God so he can give you that rest. The second rest is this. In Exodus 20, 8 to 10, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And you're thinking, wow, man, he's going Old Testament here. Listen to, to Jesus in Mark 2, 27 and 28. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. It's rest is vital for us. God created the idea, the cycle of work and rest for us so that our bodies and our minds and our spirits could be full of life. And when we ignore the cycle of work and rest that God has designed for us, our bodies find no rest. Rest is important. Right from the creation story, we see God at work. And then he would rest. He is our provider and he provides us rest. And when we learn to rest in him, we can trust that God will continue to lead our life on that one day that we take to rest in him. He is our provider. And one of the things I said, like I said, he desires to give us is rest. Both of those types of rest. But the enemy will want to steal that rest by having us never give up control, either kind of rest. We can constantly still try to earn favor with God, piling on heavy burdens of our failure instead of giving it to him. We can walk in disobedience by never disciplining ourselves to practice Sabbath rest. So do you need to trust Jesus in this, to trust him enough to give you rest? rest. Another way 
that God provides for us is this. God gives us peace. Peace. On earth, we mostly view peace as this, the absence of conflict, right? Especially as parents. If any of you have been parents and maybe your kids are growing up or you're still dealing with it, but what is a peaceful moment when you stop and you listen and the kids aren't arguing, they're not fighting, they're not breaking anything, they're not doing, and there's no conflict happening in that moment. And you're like, ah, peace. We find the absence of conflict. That is what peace is supposed to be. That's what we think it's supposed to be. This can be true between people and families, tribes, and factions between things or countries. Peace. God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And regarding peace, note the difference in how Jesus presents peace for his followers. John 14, 27, he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give, gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace, the shalom that God gives is different in that you can't simultaneously be living through conflict and yet have peace, or that you can have that, sorry. You can live simultaneously in conflict with peace. How? When Jesus was saying that, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, when he was saying that and saying, I don't give as the world gives, peace be with you was a common way to say goodbye in Hebrew and in Aramaic. They would say, peace be with you as they'd leave. You're going to see, we'd say, see you later, or goodbye, have a good day. For them, peace be with you. I think it's, I can't say it properly, but it's something like shalom al-chalamak. That's what they would say. Every time they would, they would part company. And so he was saying, I, I don't, I'm not giving you peace as the world gives. I'm not giving you peace like that, where it's just a, See you later, guys. That's not what I'm giving you. I'm giving you and departing a peace. I'm imparting a peace with you so that your hearts won't be troubled. They won't be afraid. Jesus goes on to describe what this peace life looks like in the midst of overwhelming conflict. In John 15, 18 to 19, and John 16, 33, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Okay, this isn't sounding very peaceful yet. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, fit, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world that in me you may have peace in the midst of conflict. And like I said last week about the Apostle Paul, whose life was full of conflict on earth, experienced God as providing peace. And this is how he described it for us. Like I said last week, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, to be at peace. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because you have peace. 
Your circumstances don't become overwhelming. The crises and conflict around you doesn't dictate your life because you have peace. Again, the enemy desires to steal our peace through conflict, through problems, through issues. The enemy robs our strength by stealing our joy. We can also walk disillusioned that because there's conflict, we think God isn't with us. But God is our provider. And he does want to give us each peace, his peace. Can you root yourself in the peace of God and not in how much or how little conflict that you have in your life? Peace. Now, as we went through those last two provisions of God, I did something for us to help us be enriched in what Scripture means to us. I gave it context. I looked at what the passage was about and what uh, the promise or the purpose of it was for the original reader or hearer of those words. Now, context is crucial in understanding the ancient text that we have, the Bible. Even though it's living and it changes us, context is king in this situation, especially the promises and provisions of God. For instance, there's two that we often take out of context. There may be two that you're familiar with, and if I'm stepping in your toes, sorry, not sorry. But I want you to be able to understand God's word and, and, and apply it directly and clearly in your lives. This first one, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Maybe you've seen it on Facebook a million times in its more common uh, language, the NIV, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And you read that and you're like, yes, God, I'm all in on that. Give me that as a, as a lawn sign or a Bible cover or, you know, I'm posting it everywhere I possibly can. This is what I'm praying for my life. It's such a tasty promise that we want to hold on to especially in our cultural mindset. God has plans for us to prosper, which in our mind, we immediately translate to be wealthy or be secure in our finances or be able to buy what I need to buy or want to buy, to be safe, to give us a hope and a seemingly lovely future. But in its context, I want you to listen to what those verses are really about. From Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14, just a small section around it. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. That place was Israel. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for your disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you from the place which I deported you. Okay, there. Raise your hand if you've been deported. If you've been 
stuck in another place. Anybody living in Babylon right now? We, some people call this a new, like a cultural Babylon for us as believers, but it's not that Babylon. This was a specific promise to a specific nation that was abducted and brought to Babylon. They had 70 years to go before that promise was going to be fulfilled. He said, in 70 years, remember this, if you cry out to God, he's going to hear you and he's going to restore you. And he remembers that his plans aren't for you to have captivity, but to prosper and have a land and, and, and everything like that. They're specifically to the nation of Israel that was stuck, not even all of Israel, but a portion of them who had been taken away to Babylon. There was still another portion that was in the land of Israel, and they were rebuilding the temple and thinking, like, oh, man, God's on our side. Things are going really well. And there's other people stuck in Babylon going, where's God? They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. They're making the nation great again, and we're still stuck here. And he says, I haven't forgotten you. I know the plans that I have for you. You're going to get back there. And we want to take that promise and we want to claim it for our own. And here's the thing. Does God have plans for us? 100% yes. He knows the first day of your life and the last day of your life. He knows everything that you're going to do and he has plans for you. Right? Since the foundation of the earth, God had plans and purposes for you to do to glorify him. He does have plans for you. Yes. Does he want to harm us? Absolutely not. Will we prosper? Maybe. Maybe. That's one of those equal, unequal provision points. Not everyone on earth is going to prosper. If we were to use the scripture and say to, to uh, some, some Christians, the underground church in China, and say, don't worry, Jeremiah 29, 11, you're going to prosper. When they hide every little scrape of Bible they get. They memorize it rather than hold on to the paper because they know if they're caught with the Bible, it means they're imprisonment. What does it look like to prosper? It's a very dangerous thing for just to grab out of context and to hold on to it. We do have a future, absolutely. And when we hold on to that rest in our salvation that we have from God, when we hold on to the peace that he gives us, just like Michael is, he's in his glory right now. He's in his glory right now. Our future is safe and secure in him. All right. It's all right. There's another one. All right. Second one. Second Chronicles, Chronicles 7, 14. And if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. It's been a rallying cry for a lot of Christians, isn't it? Canada, please be healed and be returned to having some, some revival in it as far as following God. We hear it all the time in prayer meetings. God, will you just do this. We say yes and amen to that, don't we? God, would you heal our land? It does surely need healing. But here's the context again for that specific passage. David, the same David from David and Goliath and who became king. He was like a shepherd boy and became king. He's now old. He had designed a temple for God's glory because 
Like he wrote so many psalms in the Bible because he loved worshiping God. But he, he had too much blood on his hands from all the war of helping build the nation of Israel that God said, you can't build my temple. Too much, You're, you've been a warrior king and now I need like a king who's, who's not going to be a warrior king to build my temple. And so Solomon, his son, builds it and he had just finished building it and he said, God, I hope you really like the temple that we built for you. And this was God's response to him in Second Chronicles 7, 12 to 17 and 19, 20. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. Notice the, the bold, if, if there is bold, yes, there is. If, remember our conditional promises that we talked about, right? If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my own people and... There's the switch of the condition there. And then, you could put a then in there for properly for us in our English. And then my people who bear my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive them their sin and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayers from this place, that temple. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. However, if you turn away and abandon my statutes and my commands that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, then I will uproot Israel from the soil that I gave them in this temple that I have sanctified for my name. I will banish from my presence and I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among the peoples. Again, a specific provision for a specific people at a specific time that was conditional. And it's not a condition we can fulfill now. If my people, that my people in scripture, they're Israelis, not Christians, and it's the country of Israel, not Canada. Does this mean you shouldn't be humble, pray, seek God's face, and live holy lives? Of course not. That's basic Christianity. Please do those things. What it means is that there's no condition for God to have to come and heal the land of Canada and to restore to something that it never was. God's chosen people in their land of promise. There can be a great awakening in Canada, yes. And we can pray for that. But taking the scripture and thinking that if we do those things, then God will do those things. It doesn't work that way. That was a national, a national repentance required for God to do that. Not a small little remnant of Christians in a country saying, okay, we've, we've said, God, like, you know, sorry for everybody in Canada. There's maybe, I don't know how many Christians there are in Canada, but if every Christian in Canada tried to repent for the whole 40 million Canadians, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. We have to be careful how we hold on to these things and call them as promises for ourselves now. Now, you may be thinking I'm being a stickler about this stuff, that 
it's just semantics, isn't it? I can still pray for revival. I can still pray for the land to be healed. I can still do that, but I just can't take that one scripture and use it. Fine, I can just pray all those things without using that scripture to claim it and think that God's going to do it. Yes and no, I am being a stickler on it, but no, I'm not, because God is under no obligation to answer as we wish when he hasn't covenanted to do so. And it has implications for how we use scriptures, such as ask and it will be given unto you. If we start taking them out of context, then we're left with, with more implications in our lives. We extend it to this, this, our context to allow us to ask for a myriad of things that God is never going to give us. And then we're left with a new reality. God isn't answering our prayers. He's not answering my prayers. I, I, I asked, and he said, anything I ask in his name, he's going to give me, and yet he's not giving it to me. What's going on? How come God isn't answering my prayers? What, is this, what does it say about God? The real question is, what does it say about me? How do I understand God? It's tough, isn't it? But context, reading and knowing our word is important. And on that note, I've got another one for us to look at, another provision. Not another scripture that we sometimes take out of context, but another scripture. Another provision God gives us. God supplies our needs. Not our wants, but our needs. God supplies our needs. When it comes to our needs, which include our finances, in Philippians 4.19 it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, supply is just a different word for provide. Now, God is rich in many things, many things. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in grace. He's rich in forgiveness. But we're going to focus more on the, the practical, like tangible and uh, literal riches. And I can think of nothing more than finances to be the lightning rod that we need for this conversation and teaching us uh, what provision looks like in this series. And so let's start with, with something unpopular that Jesus believed and taught. Jesus believed that everyone was a steward of everything God entrusted to them. That everyone is a steward of everything God entrusts to them. Now, we may see money through the lens of prosperity or poverty. Poverty, you either have it or you don't. But Jesus knows that, but he asks us to view through a different lens. He asks us to the view through the lens of provision like he does. And again, God gives, he provides equally, but not always evenly. Depends on the purpose that God has for you and what he's called you to be and do in life. So let's dive into this one. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either you'll hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So true, isn't it? You got two things pulling at you. You know that you've got to choose between one or the other, and you're trying to, you're trying to do both. You're trying to live in the reality of both. And what usually happens? You despise one and love the other, don't you? One you can like, oh, you, you, you hate the obligation of having to fulfill that and love being over in this other place 
And with money is, is a huge uh, place in our hearts for that. When it comes to money, the central question that Jesus keeps asking us over and over in a variety of different ways is this. Who is your master? Who is your master? Because if you're a steward, that means there's somebody who's your master. To whom do you belong? We, how we handle money exposes our financial master. Robert Morris, who uh, has done a lot of work on uh, finances and helping us understand finances from a biblical perspective, says this, understanding that God owns and we steward is the most vital understanding you must embrace to begin the journey of healthy finances, that he owns and we steward. A steward is someone who manages something which belongs to another. And here's what I want you to understand. You don't decide to become a steward. You already are one. You already are one. Just who are you stewarding for? Since you are a steward, like I said, who are you stewarding for? What kind of steward are you? And what kind of steward do you desire to become? If everything I have is his, and everything you have is his, I'm responsible to steward 100% of what God places into my hands. And the first step he asks of that is to return to him the first 10% as an act of worship, of lordship, of saying, God, here, you've given me this. You've given me the the whole of this. Here's 10% back to you to say, I know it's yours. And with the 90%, I'm going to listen to your spirit leading me in how I steward the rest of what's yours. We often think, okay, this big pile's mine. God asked for 10% of what's mine. And I have to give him 10% of what's mine, which hurts when we want to do that. And then the 90%, I can do with it what I want. But as a steward, it's all his. We don't choose. We listen, we hear, and we say, God, everything you give me, my finances, everything is for your purpose. It's for your purpose. I've given you 10% to say, listen, I know it's not mine. Now with the 90, you need to lead me and guide me in your purposes. Sometimes we're unwilling to do this because we don't trust God. We go, man, the 90% or the 100% I have barely meets the needs that I have. How do I just trust you with it all? I need, I need to control this. We have a hard time trusting God with it. And sometimes we're unable to take this step because we already have other masters. Debt is a master. That's not from God. Materialism is a master. The question is, again, who will I serve? Culture may teach us, and it's a great question to ask, can I afford this purchase? Can I afford to make this decision? That's great. But the biblical question is this, how will it affect me in serving my master? Money will make us promises of that peace and security and rest that only God can provide. No matter how much money you make, You're still chasing rest, aren't you? You're still chasing peace and security, no matter how much you have. Whether you have a little or a lot, you always think you need that little bit more to finally have 
the rest that you need, the security that you need, the peace that you need. Because you'll never be enough. But God, he is our peace. He is our rest. He is our security. And he offers those things to us when money cannot. The stewardship road is this, that I put God first in everything, including my finances. I practice gratitude for all God puts into my hands. I steward faithfully what he has entrusted to me. And I hold everything in my life with an open hand, which God can wisely direct. When your hand closed, what's in there, it's really hard to get out. And God can't really get it out of your hands. And he's going to step back and let you be the big financial advisor for your life that you think you are. But when you live open-handed, you're like, oh, it's so precarious in there like that. It could just drop out of my hand at any moment. But when we live like this, when we live like this before God, and let him lead and let him take what he needs to do what he will, look what he also can do. Fill. When you hold on, that's all you get. Whatever's in there is all he can give you. Your hand is closed. Anything he drops in, drops off, it's going to go to somebody else. But when you stand and say, God, I'm going to be open-handed before you. Take what you need to use it for what you will. But you can also fill into my hands more than I ever could ever hold on to tightly. So we live open-handed so he, God can wisely direct us. And finances is something that you're struggling with and want to work through. I highly re- recommend. As a church, we have... The, the right now media sources that you can, you can freely use. You just have to go into our website and, and get a free login to right now media. And in there, there's a resource called Rock Solid Finances. That is a great primer in helping you reset how you work on your finances and how you allow God to create the margin in your life to be able to be a blessing rather than to live, you know, looking at your paychecks or looking at the money coming in and going... It doesn't balance with what I need to put out. So it'd be a great resource. There's other there, but I know I've, I've worked through rock-solid finances with people, and it's, it'll, it'll serve your needs. Jehovah Jireh. God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, who gives us rest, peace, and supplies all our needs. So this week, start with trusting who God is. Expose the enemy's lies, his plans, his attacks in your life. See how the enemy's trying to break you down and away from how God wants to lead you. And then third, walk in obedience with God's word. He'll provide. He will be your provider. And as you study, read all around a scripture verse that you like. Understand its context to see how you can apply it to your life. There's always an application. It just may not be what you think. And as we leave today, I want you to remember this from 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
By these, he has given us very real and, and great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. God has given us what we need. We have precious promises we can hold on to, and we need to do so. I'm going to pray, and then, and then we're going to lead into a, a moment of communion. And if you haven't received one of these and you would like to participate in communion, you can just stick up your hand, and one of our usher team will, uh, will come in, in, and give you one. Let's just close the message in prayer. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that our, you are a provider. You are our rest. You offer us salvation. You offer us physical rest, emotional rest, mental rest. You are the one who gives us peace. And you are the one who supplies all our needs. Not all our wants, but our needs. And we want to hold tight to the precious promises that you've given us that allow us to live this life for your glory and your goodness. May we hold on to them while we live open-handedly before you, trusting in your wisdom and your guidance for our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.